0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. Hi, it's Dave Musgrove, editor of BBC History magazine, here once again to introduce you to our latest podcast. I'm joined by the deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. Hi, Sue. Hello. And the section editor, Rob Attar. Hello. Now then, the March issue of the magazine is ready for your delectation, and we've got some great features for you to enjoy this month. From a history of racism in 20th century Britain, to ten things you didn't know about the Great Wall of China. Plus, we've got World War One buses and why rabbits and Nazis were mentioned in the same breath by an MP in the House of Parliament in 1953. Our first big interview this month takes us back to the Middle Ages, though. Mark Morris has just written his latest book on the subject of King Edward I. He's written a fascinating feature for us in the magazine about how Edward turned the Scots against the English, so I caught up with him to find out a little more about this cross-border antagonism. You've just written your new book on Edward I, and you've done a piece for the magazine. And in the magazine, you're focusing quite closely on the events of 1290, and you're exploring what Edward I did to make Scotland an enemy of England. Can you just give us a bit of background to what's going on there?
3: Well, I chose 1290 for the piece because, as far as I'm concerned, it's the pivotal year of Edward's reign. And by extension, it's the pivotal year for British history. The background is that Edward I had been outside of England for the previous three years, 1286 to 1289. He'd been in Gascony, largely to try and get his cousin, who was the King of Sicily, out of prison. Mm. And Edward's big aim, from the mid-1280s onwards, was to go on crusade again. He'd been as a young man before he was king, and he was determined to lead a European-wide crusade. So as far as he's concerned, the big picture and the big aim is Peace in europe which means springing his cousin and then all the sort of princes of europe led by him are going to go off and reclaim jerusalem the holy city Mm. but that's his big agenda and that seems pretty close to fruition on his return in 1290 because his cousin is free peace seems in prospect in in europe what throws it all into disarray is the death of the king of scots in 1286 just before edward leaves Mm. and this is a terrible tragedy for Scotland, as I say in the article, but it also presents Edward with a great opportunity, because he sees that he could marry his only son, his only surviving son, the future Edward II, to the sole heiress of the Kingdom of Scotland, who is uh, Margaret the Maid of Norway. So this is really the icing on the cake, as far as Edward is concerned. Uh, it, it shouldn't affect his crusade plans. It should just be... sort of, It's an ideal situation, really, to marry these two infants and by extension the two kingdoms and what I'm trying to say in the piece is what I'm trying to explain in the piece is how everything goes awry
1: what does happen what's what's the situation in 1290
3: well in 1290 the situation in Scotland certainly it's Everything is, is coming together, uh, and Edward's plan seems to be bearing fruit. The Scots, people tend to assume that the Scots and the English were at loggerheads for centuries, and this idea that you could just marry these two children together, and then you'd have peace between the kingdoms and, and, and a united kingdom. Because that's what's in prospect in 1290. Is, is that if these two children, the, the son of the King of England, the future King of England, and the sole heiress to Scotland get married, then they are going to produce children who are going to inherit both kingdoms. Mm. So what you've got there in 1290 is this uh, opportunity, just because the dynastic dice have rolled in a certain way, for a union of the crowns of the kind that doesn't happen until 1603, Mm. um, when James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. Now, a lot of readers may may assume that this is kind of almost a ridiculous suggestion, because we tend to think of the English and the Scots as always fighting each other in the Middle Ages. It's kind of their default position. And in fact, as I, again I say in the article, this is a misapprehension. The, the Scots and the English were, were going on tremendously in the 13th century. Edward's aunt had been married to a King of Scots, Edward's uh, sister had been married to a King of Scots, and it's not just the royal family, it's the aristocracies as well. So you've got these two kingdoms who are getting on famously, and Scotland since the 12th century, has been approximating itself culturally to England. So it's not that the Scots, the English, view the Scots as their enemies or barbarians. They are their cousins, they are their relatives, they are their friends. Mm. But there's no reason at all why this marriage shouldn't go ahead. In 1290, the Scots are slightly wary of Edward I because he's a much bigger beast. They are a small kingdom on the periphery of civilization who don't have the military or the economic resources to match the kingdom of England. So in that respect, they are country cousins to the kings of England. But as far as they're concerned, it's an amicable relationship. They've just got to be They're slightly wary, or very wary, of the fact that um, this is an unequal alliance, this is an unequal partnership. And what they're keen to do is safeguard their independence.
1: So this so this, let's just saying this is nothing like the situation in say 1707 when there was widespread concern about the, the union of England and Scotland when, when and when the Scots were genuinely worried that their whole identity would be swallowed up by England that wasn't the case well, in 1219. No
3: I think it, I mean I don't I know very little about the events of 1707 but I think in that sense that, that it, it, may, it must be quite similar because there are concerns there are very grave concerns in Scotland at the same time they don't really have any other option they have because Alex, it's not just Alexander III, the King of Scots, who died, all his children predeceased him. His bloodline only survives in the form of his granddaughter, mm. who is his daughter's daughter the, and also the daughter of the King of Norway. So this six or seven year old girl has grown up in Norway, and she is the last hope for that bloodline, stretching back to the, the mid 12th century. So the Scots, unless they are going to have a great big to do about who is king, then they're going with this girl. And that's the way the succession has turned out for them. Yeah. So they can't have a six or seven year old girl on the Scottish throne without a protector. You know, they have to have some some solution. Yes. Uh, also, I mean, they can't really have a queen I mean, at this stage in, in European history. There have been extremely few reigning queens. I'm trying to think of. I mean, we had Matilda in in England, but that, that was a terrible situation as well. Mm. So they need to marry this girl to someone and who are they going to pick if not the son of the king of england you know it, it makes sense from every kind of angle except as you say the scots are concerned that their identity may be
1: subsumed
3: within england
1: so by hook or by crook an agreement of a sort is established and the maid of norway is on the way she's she's in a in a ship coming from norway about to come to scotland and then everything goes wrong
3: the maid of Norway dies, mm. famously. We don't know why she died. She gets sick during the voyage. I believe it's not possible to die of seasickness, so she presumably she eats some something that's gone bad. or yeah. She, in some way, gets totally ill in the course of the voyage. Yeah. And you see, the thing is, everyone stands to benefit from it. That's why it's such a great tragedy. And so she gets to Norway. She's, I think she's lying sick at Norway. And um, by the time the sort of Scottish and English ambassadors get that far north, they hear the news that she's dead. Yep. And this throws the whole thing into, into utter disarray because it blows the question of the Scottish succession wide open. From that point on you, you have to trace the bloodline back to the late 12th century and there are, well famously there are sort of multiple claimants, there are sort of 13, 14, 15 claimants. Mm. Um, it really comes down to two principal men who have the strongest claim to the Scottish throne. One is John Balliol and the other is Robert Bruce. The Bruce's and the Ballioles have the best rival claims. But there's still, that sort of polarizes Scottish politics. Neither one of them is in a position to overrule the other. It's not like, you know, 90% of people come out for the Ballioles and mm. therefore a short civil war could have ended this. Yes. There is complete division in Scotland and they fear there's going to be a civil war. So once again, what do they do? What do the sort of sensible men of peace do? They say, well, we must sort this out legally. We must have an arbitration. We must get some outside power to come in and help us sort this out. And, of course, who is the biggest uh, outside power? Who's the man who's been trying to bring peace to Europe for the last uh, however many years, five or six years? is Edward I. Whoever wins what they hope is going to be a legal rather than a, a military contest between Bruce and Balliol, whoever wins, if they've got the King of England as their backer, knows that they are going to be the winner and there will be no dispute about it. You know, once you've got this much, much more powerful kingdom to the south... ...throwing its weight behind you, then there can be no argument. Yeah. So that's the situation that they're anticipating in the autumn. The terrible twist for the Scots, and I think this is where uh, you would argue... ...Edward I makes his greatest miscalculation of his reign... ...is that Edward sees this now as an opportunity. He had this opportunity of, of effecting a union by marriage. He now wants to use this same opportunity, the opportunity that has been created... ...by him being invited into arbitrate, as an opportunity to elicit an unqualified statement of Scotland's inferiority or subjugation to england and this is this is the, the the potential source of disagreement that has existed between england and scotland for the last couple of centuries yeah above and beyond all the kind of intermarriage and the bonhomie and the sort of visits to each other's courts and exchanges of gifts and 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 the getting on like a house on fire there is this great question which various scottish kings uh, have managed to duck from one generation to the next and various english kings have had the um, wisdom or ability to compromise, to ignore. And yeah. that's the question of, is Scotland in any way subject to England? And Edward I, like a lot of his predecessors, believes that it is, believes that Scotland is just a part of a greater whole of, in the British Isles, which should kowtow to England, that, that there is only one crown in the British Isles, and that is the crown worn by the English kings. And any power exercised by the King of Scots is delegated to him by the King of England. The Kings of Scots are just, in that sense, vassal rulers.
1: And this, this is clearly a suggestion which is going to grate with the Scots.
3: Absolutely, because the Scots have been maintaining, ever so politely, for all that time, for the last couple of centuries, that in fact they are a completely independent kingdom. And, of course, the evidence is entirely on the Scots side, and if we look at it now dispassionately as historians, we think, well, of course Scotland was an independent kingdom. We can chart the history of the Kingdom of Scots, you know, way back into the, the distant mists time of the early Middle Ages. But no one in England saw it like that. You know, they, their history books told them that there was once a place called Britain and they see England as, as highly equated with Britain. And they are trying to restore this greater whole. The uh, Anglo-Saxon kings have made these great claims to be rulers of the whole of Britain.
1: Yeah, I think but it was Athelstan who famously said he was the emperor of Britain, wasn't exactly, he? So, yeah. Exactly,
3: and those are, kind of, those are the kind of um, epithets that the English kings are developing in the 10th and 11th centuries, claiming to be emperors of, of, of the whole of, of the islands of Britain. But what gives it a real shot in the arm this idea because the normans initially don't seem that interested in it they're sort of quite content to be just kings of england on their coins and on in their writs. Mm. what gives this a real shot in the arm is the mischievous fabrications of geoffrey of monmouth in the 1130s who famously writes this book called a history of the kings of britain for reasons that we haven't got time to go into but it's this is where all the king arthur stuff comes from yeah or, or is developed in such a way you know that it becomes a sort of standard history of Britain and England, and, and the, the, the everyone goes wild for it. I mean, it's, it's an incredible bestseller. There's hundreds of surviving copies from mm. these 12th and 13th centuries. So, people like Edward First and everyone at his court, cool, and everyone who practically is, is in a position to own a book or read in, in, in England, knows that, that Arthur, for example, Geoffrey's greatest superhero, once ruled all of Britain, had beaten the Scots. The Scots had come to his coronation and borne swords before him. You know, there's absolutely no doubt that all these rulers of the distant, very distant past that Geoffrey of Monmouth made up, it, if you go back to sort of the founding fathers, Brutus, in the history of the kings of Britain, his sons divide up the island between themselves, and the ones who go to rule in Wales and Scotland are subject to their older brother, who rules England, but also is sort of, England, by implication, in charge of the whole. Yeah. So... This, this is something that is just a given in England, whereas the Scots are, are absolutely convinced that they are independent. That There is this myth in England that the Scots had always been subject. Um,
1: the English so, so Edward has this, has this attitude which is imbued in him which is, he's, been, he's been given as he's grown up that England is superior to Scotland so he's got this opportunity to make Scotland fit that suggestion so, so how does this lead into the famous wars of independence and the declaration of Arbraith and, and the centuries of, of Anglo-Scottish antagonism?
3: Well what, as far as you can tell what seems to happen is the, as I say the, the Scots invite Edward into to arbitrate and Edward takes the trouble to prepare his case and he obviously th- thinks that there's going to be some objection to him insisting that he is Scotland's overlord. It's an extraordinary um, act he does where he, he not only searches his royal archives, which are extensive, you know, he's got hundreds, tens of thousands of rolls now in the National Archives of, of, Edward, of the roles produced by Edward's government, but he not only looks through them, he writes to all the abbots and monasteries and says i want you to search your chronicles and find evidence that england is scotland's rightful overlord and so he he puts together this document i mean it's not an exaggeration to call it a dodgy dossier he puts (laughs) together this case for his superiority and presents it to the scots who seem to have been none the wiser i mean they seem to have come to to the border to meet him in in the spring of 1291 and expecting that he's going to turn up and sort of say oh yes right bruce badly i will have an arbitration and i'll um all I'm, all I'm doing is coming up as a sort of um, a friend to help out. Yeah. And what actually he presents them with is like, I can't arbitrate because actually there are many more candidates than just Bruce and Balliol. And the, the best way for me to sort, help you sort this out is if I act as judge. And, and of course I'm entitled to act as judge because I'm Scotland's superior lord, as you'll no doubt agree. Um, here is a dossier to prove this assertion. And uh, if you don't agree with it, then you can always fight me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's real gumbo diplomacy. And so uh, from that point on, the English and the Scots are, are not seeing eye to eye.
1: Mark Morris's A Great and Terrible King, Edward I and the Forging of Britain is just published by Hutchinson and you can read his feature in the March issue of BBC History Magazine and also we've got a special slideshow of photographs of the sites he visited while researching this story on our website which is of course at com. So that's the Middle Ages done with, Uh, my colleague Rob has been talking to Dominic Sandbrook about racism Rob, what's what's Dominic been telling you about?
2: Well, uh, as... People may know, this year is 40 years since Enoch Powell's famous or perhaps infamous Rivers of Blood speech, which highlighted racial tensions in Britain. And it's also 60 years since the arrival of the Windrush, which was the first major post-war influx of Caribbean immigrants into Britain. And so he's, in a piece in the magazine, he's trying to tie these two in together to look at which had a bigger long-term effect on Britain and British society. And again, in this podcast discussion... He's saying similar things and he's talking about whether Britain was a racist country in the 1960s, what happened next, and the long-term effect on Enoch Powell himself his speech.
1: Let's hear what Dominic had to say.
2: You write in the piece that following the Rivers of Blood speech, Enoch Powell had the support of the majority of the British population. Yeah. Does that mean that we were basically a nation of racists at the time?
4: Well, I think it all depends on what you mean by the word racist. I think if you mean did people have ingrained views about racial distinctions and did they have ingrained prejudices that they had picked up through education, through the books they read and through the kind of attitudes they grown up with, then yes, we were. If you mean by that, however, does that mean that people kind of walked around with segregationist attitudes or uh, actively discriminating, then no, I, I think that's too much of a generalization. There was a lot of racism and you'd see no colored signs at boarding houses and things like that and they were obviously far more acceptable than they were today but i think it's just too much of a board brush to say the whole country was racist i think you know people had prejudices just as in fact they do today but i think they were just much more unashamed about their prejudices and they were probably more deep-seated
2: but it might be a surprise for people to learn now that this speech at the time was popular because today if you mention rivers of blood speech people mm-hmm. react with horror but it was completely different in those days
4: well, I suppose there was a sense in which Enoch Powell then was speaking for an awful lot of people who felt that their views hadn't been taken into account. I mean, obviously, people never voted for mass immigration. In fact, the opinion polls show that opposition to it grew over time and that people became increasingly dissatisfied. And they, people, I'm, I'm obviously talking about the white population, yeah, they felt that politicians had ignored their wishes and kind of cooked this all up over their heads. And I think it also coincided with The late 60s was not a great time in British history. Politically, there was a real sense of political dissatisfaction. The economy was turning downhill and whatnot. And the Powell speech, you know, needs to be seen in that context. And people, I think, saw in Powell a sort of popular champion who was speaking for resentments that had long been suppressed and that now were finally kind of surging up to the surface.
2: So in 1968, were race and immigration quite important issues to most people?
4: I think they were dependent on who you were and where you lived. So let's say um, if you're in the West Midlands, for example, where Powell was from, Wolverhampton, where there had been significant immigrant settlements, immigration was a pretty big issue because particularly, I mean, this is an area that's not doing very well and has turned down economically with the sort of uh, decline of British manufacturing and whatnot and people look on the immigrants as scapegoats. But in general, the really interesting thing to me is that opinion polls and whatnot show that people do have very strong feelings about immigration, but actually in elections, they don't tend to vote on lines of uh, race or immigration policy. So in 1970, just two years later, immigration really isn't a particularly decisive or important issue in the general election between Harold Wilson and Ted Heath. Although a lot of people felt very strongly about it, there was a sense in which people also felt, I think, that it, it wasn't really a legitimate issue to have at the forefront of politics. They didn't make their decisions based on it, really.
2: And did the politicians themselves try and avoid using the subject?
4: They did. I mean, there was a real sense in which race and immigration were seen as illegitimate issues to to bring to the forefront of the political arena. So let's say in 1964, when you had the one and really the only time where a nakedly racist candidate, the Tory candidate in Smethwick, won an election on, on an issue of basically immigrant bashing he was ostracized by almost all his parliamentary colleagues. I mean, it was a real cause celebre, and people really were horrified by it. And he, you know, the Tory party, which would have been, I suppose, the natural party to have taken a strongly anti-immigration line, didn't really do so. I mean, it sort of gestured towards it, but a lot of the people at the top of the Tory party, the kind of Ted Heats and the Quentin Hoggs, thought that, you know, this was a kind of vulgar, tawdry, you know, unbecoming issue, they shouldn't take it up there was a kind of liberal consensus, I suppose, not in the nation as a whole, but in the political establishment, that they weren't going to open this particular can of worms. And I think it's actually to their credit that they didn't, because that meant that Powell's forecast of like a race war and a clash of the races and all of this generally didn't arise. And I think that the fact that politicians didn't stir it up and didn't try and exploit the issue is one of the reasons why it didn't.
2: Yes, because even though he had a lot of support for his speech, the things that he said were going to happen, they didn't happen. The, the river's flowing with blood. So why do you think, is it, was it just as liberal consensus to stop that?
4: I think attitudes obviously changed over time, To me, So, you know, you, you look at opinion polls, people became increasingly tolerant of black neighbours, they became used to them. I think immigrants often had very different kinds of experiences. You know, they, Some were assimilated pretty easily, some found it very difficult, some complained that they were discriminated against and whatnot. I think there was a whole kind of spectrum of attitudes and Powell's apocalyptic prediction was very much a worst case scenario that thankfully never arose. I suppose it's a tribute to the tolerance of, of the British people eventually that it, that it didn't come up. I mean, obviously there were loads of cases of racism and indeed there's racism still today. But I think... The one thing that Powell really got wrong was his sense that things were going to get worse and worse and there was going to be some great clash of the races. I think he was very much influenced by what was going on in the States at the time in the U.S. race riots and the big cities, as were a lot of other British politicians. And what he perhaps didn't realize was that the conditions in Britain were very different and that it would be much easier to assimilate black newcomers into British society than in many ways it was for the big American cities to welcome migrants from the South in the 1960s.
2: And this speech that Powell made effectively terminated his career, really. Do you think he realised how much of an impact it would have before he made it?
4: Um, He knew. There's a a line where he said, "The speech is going to fizz like a rocket. It's going to be an enormously um, transformative moment. And I think he knew that the speech would have a big impact. He'd been kind of edging towards it for a while. And my reading is that he partly intended the speech as a way of challenging the leadership of Ted Heath, the Tory leader, who he despised. And I think Powell always thought that Ted Heath was going to lose the 1970 election, in which case he would have been extremely well-placed to replace him. And what he didn't expect, I suppose, is that the speech would be quite as controversial as it was among, I guess, the political establishment. So a lot of people ostracized him, you know, he lost friends because of it and so on. And I suppose he never could have known that Ted Heath was actually going to win in seventeen, and that that would basically destroy his chances of ever being Tory leader. I think he thought he fancied himself as the kind of prophet in the wilderness who was going to come back and lead his party. And as, of course, things didn't turn out that way. But the one area in which he obviously did have a huge impact was in being the forerunner of Thatcherism. So in, in that way, you know, Powell has gone down as one of the most significant politicians of the last 50 years because he basically paved the way for politics of conservatism that we know today.
2: Do you think his association with the rivers of blood speech has almost unfairly tainted his reputation now?
4: I don't think it's unfairly tainted his reputation because, I mean, he made the speech, he, his political career lived or died by it, and, and he paid the price. On the other hand, I think if you just concentrate on that, if you say, as people so often do, oh, you're not know, part of the racist you not part of the anti-immigrant crusader. You miss so much more of what was an incredibly interesting uh, political character. So you miss, for instance, you know all the sort of economic stuff, um, all the kind of forecasts of Thatcherism that he'd come up with as early as well as early as the early 60s. Really, you also miss the fact that you know he was actually a much more liberal politician than is remembered. He wasn't a hanging, flogging type at all. He was very much against capital punishment. He was very anti-American. He was one of the first Tory politicians, actually, having been an ardent imperialist to say, well, now that we've got rid of the empire, you know, we should back away from our world role, we should be more realistic about our ambitions and so on. So he's a real kind of bundle of contradictions, and I think if you just sort of reduce him to this racist folk devil, then you actually miss the complexity of, of his character and of his career.
2: And do you know whether he rejected making a speech afterwards? He never,
4: uh, he never regretted making the speech. In fact, the one thing that I think is, is particularly... Um, to his demerit is that when he was later asked to disassociate himself from uh, racist thugs who had been beating up Asian immigrants while kind of chanting, you know, he is right and whatnot, he refused to disassociate himself from them because he always said, well, you know, obviously there's no association, so I refuse to disassociate myself and I will not distance myself from them because I've got nothing in common with them anyway. And I think he was very politically very insensitive and didn't realize um, the effect. I mean, he was very much a creature of Westminster, and I don't think he realized the effect that his words would have on vulnerable groups and on vulnerable families who didn't just move to Britain. Uh, and he never did repudiate this speech. He never did turn against it. He was right in one respect that people don't probably uh, realize, which is he predicted pretty accurately how many what the immigrant population of Britain would be. In the year 2000, he predicted that it would be so many people. And at the time, the consensus was, "Oh, this is just rabble-rousing and disgraceful scaremongering and whatnot. There won't be nearly as many people." Well, actually, he was quite right. What he was quite wrong about, of course, was that he didn't realise how successfully newcomers to British society would be assimilated. And I, I suppose that will always uh, haunt his reputation.
2: Also, coming on in your article, you talk about another important anniversary, which was the arrival of the Windrush 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. How was that event greeted at the time?
4: Uh, the docking of the Windrush in June forty-eight, was, it was seen at the time by a lot of people as a slightly kind of amusing um, colour piece rather than a, a landmark in, in British history. So, you know, the newspaper coverage, you go back and, it's, and you look at the newspapers and a lot of them treat it as a, a funny story of these chaps coming over to England to make a new life and, you know, isn't it all very jolly and all the rest of it. There was some dissatisfaction, there were some Labour MPs who wrote to Clement Attlee and said, you know, well, this should be stopped. It's not right. They're going to compete with British workers and all of this. But generally, it kind of crept in a slightly under the radar. The government were taken aback by it, a little bit baffled by it. But they generally thought, you know, well, these people are British citizens. It's part of the sort of imperial tradition that we welcome colonial subjects and whatnot. They didn't anticipate, of course, what the volume of immigration would be over the next 10, 20 years or so.
2: So when is it that you begin to have this turnaround in race relations?
4: Well, you get the first real inklings of it, I suppose, in the late 50s. So you get the foundation of kind of community groups that are opposed to immigration, get the first neighbourhood spokespeople, you know, complaining about it. You also, of course, get riots in 1958 in uh, St Anne's and Nottingham and, of course, most famously in Notting Hill, a race riots where young white blokes are, as they would put it in their own language, they would have said it they were going nigger hunting, and they'd go around the streets with flick knives and clubs and whatnot. In some ways, this is an isolated phenomenon. It doesn't happen again, but I guess it hints at what's bubbling away under the surface, which is this kind of resentment and dissatisfaction that a lot of people have about the influx of newcomers. And then I think when conditions, when economic conditions and when people sense the well-being begins to turn downwards in the mid-60s, then they look for scapegoats, and then they turn against the immigrants, and then you get this sort of climate that gives rise to, you know, power speech.
2: Coming on to today, obviously there is always anti-immigration <laughs> feeling vented even in the 21st century. How do you think that compares to what happened in the 1960s?
4: I actually think people are much more tolerant now than they were. So there is anti-immigrant sentiment, unquestionably. My sense is that it's slightly less racialized, partly because... Most immigrants to Britain now come from elsewhere in Europe. They don't come from the Commonwealth. And I think we have a far greater sense now that we live in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society. There's an argument about whether it's a genuinely multicultural one, but it's certainly multi-ethnic and multi-racial. And that's something that I guess back in the early 50s, a lot of people would have been quite challenged by and they would have resented that and disliked it because they thought of britain as mono-ethnic or they thought of england certainly as mono-ethnic and i guess that's the, probably the biggest change it's a cliche that britain or that england is a nation of immigrants but i think in the 1950s many to say that would have been a little bit more shocking certainly to ordinary people
2: so maybe in the end of the windrush and enoch powell's speech it was a windrush that was the most important in the long term
4: Well, I think in the long term, the Windrush was the more important. I mean, the Windrush goes down as this landmark in um, the history of race in Britain and the history of people coming to Britain and of the British kind of demographic landscape. The Powell speech is obviously always going to be notorious and famous, but it doesn't really need anywhere. I mean, race relations don't get much, much worse after 1968. They steadily improve. There's no race war. There are no rivers of blood. And in that sense the Powell speech kind of stands alone, slightly detached from the mainstream of history, whereas I would argue that the Windrush is probably far more deeply embedded in the course of our national life.
2: And when did the Windrush become this iconic moment? Because you say at the time it wasn't really greeted with much excitement, but later on it became a defining moment.
4: Yeah, I think the Windrush became much more of a defining moment probably in the 80s, would be my guess. I think as the children of the first immigrants come to maturity and as they start to research their history, to look for their origins, to look for their roots, to trace the history of their community in Britain. And then people fix on the wind rush, and that becomes a great symbol. Of course, it wasn't the only boat that arrived that time, but it was the most famous, it's the most dramatic. And so that's become enshrined, if you like, as the, as the icon of immigration into Britain and why we mark its anniversary this year.
1: So that was Dominic Sunbrook. Now it's time for me to have a chat with the deputy editor of the magazine, Sue Wingrove, who's in charge of our book reviews section. Sue, what's the lead book that we're looking at this month?
0: Right, the lead book this month is Italy's Sorrow, A Year of War 1944-1945 to by James Holland. Now this is an impressive account of the destructive and bitter military campaign in the Second World War Italy. Holland based his reconstructions of the war on a series of interviews with combatants on both sides and it's a long, very detailed and um, hugely researched account of the Allied invasion and conquest of Italy. Um, he concentrates on the military campaign from the Battle of Cassino in May 44 to the liberation of Bologna in um, April 1945. And it's, it's a great book which describes the um, the campaigns um, in, in detail.
1: What does our reviewer think of it? He
0: thought it was an excellent book. Philip Morgan reviewed it for us. And he was particularly interested because his father actually fought in Italy in that period. So he was quite keen to, to learn a little more about it because his father, like uh, many people who fought in the war, wasn't necessarily very keen to, um, to sort of relive the whole thing. So I think Philip was quite interested to find out uh, more about it. And he thought it was a great book.
1: OK. What else are we reviewing? We've got Filth and Diseases in Victorian Britain.
0: Yes, now this is The Great Stink by Stephen Halliday, who wrote the, the Great Filth. Now, The Great Stink is about the filth diseases. Now, the filth diseases are those that are caused and exacerbated by bad living conditions. So... We're talking cholera, typhoid, fever, smallpox and typhus. And remember, people didn't really used to know what caused these diseases. Um, now we know that it's, it's bad water and bad drainage and, and dirt, basically. So the answer to improving these conditions was lay just as much with engineers as with doctors. Um, it was the real the infrastructure of urban Britain that needed to be changed. And this, this relates, talks about some of the people who helped with improving water supplies and sewer systems and also some of the laws and Measures that politicians put into place to enable these um, improvements to take place.
1: Halliday's got a good line in exploring um, filthy subjects like that, so I'm sure that's good. Indeed. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of gruesome detail in there, and I imagine there's lots of gruesome detail mm-hmm. in The Witches of War Boys by Philip Almond.
0: Yes, now this is, a, this is an account of a 16th century witch trial. A strange little story, really. An, an elderly woman woman came to confess to the alleged crime of witchcraft. And she was hanged for it in 1593, but just to make sure they hung her or hanged her husband and her daughter as well. So it's a real sad, really sad story. And our our reviewer, Ronald Hutton, was very impressed with this book, um, which he thought worked just as well as a history of culture and ideas as a social history and also as a psychological study, really, of how the situation just mushroomed out of control really I mean they tried various things to resolve the situation until it seemed that a triple death was the only way out
1: Okay and we've got a review of Blair Warden's latest book. Blair Warden is uh, is one of the, the big hitters in uh, Cromwellian history. What's he been writing about?
0: Indeed. This is Literature and Politics in Cromwellian England, and this uh, reviewed by John Morrill. And this book secures Warden's reputation as the preeminent historian of Cromwellian England. It's a demanding book, but hugely rewarding. So for anyone who's interested in that period, this comes highly recommended.
1: Okay, and finally we've got something from A.D. Harvey, a regular contributor to the magazine. Uh, the book that he's written is called The Body Politic so what's that about?
0: Yes this is a slim but interesting volume and it's on the metaphor that society resembles the human body so that the social organism might be able to suffer similar disease and disorder as, as the human body might it's a quirky book but he covers I mean this metaphor is, is quite um, it's quite an old one it's from the second millennium BC right through to the current use of the metaphor for computer viruses it's quite a strong metaphor so when we talk about sick society basically that's what that's what we're talking about um, So it's quite an interesting little book.
1: Many thanks, Sue. We will come back to books, of course, next month. But finally, our last big interview is with Liam Kennedy from Queen's University, Belfast. Liam is the latest historian to step into the BBC History magazine Time Machine. I asked him which year he'd like to go back to and why, and this is what he told me. Welcome to the BBC History magazine Time Machine. Could you just, first of all, tell me which year you'd like to go back to? 16. OK, well, what are we going to be doing in 1916? Where, where and when exactly do you want to go back to?
5: Well, I'd like, like to go to Dublin on Easter Monday, 1916. And thinking of the, kind of the backdrop to this, the Great War was in full swing. You had tens of thousands of Irish soldiers at the front fighting for the, the British and their allies. But back in Dublin... A small band of Irish ultranationalists had occupied the center of the city and with their headquarters in the general post office, and I'd particularly like to locate myself close to the GPO. Indeed, ideally, just after Patrick Pearce, or Pat Pearce, as his mother called him, had read the proclamation of an Irish Republic, and... I suppose what I'd really like to get at is some of the motivation behind his involvement and um, to pose some questions about the longer-term consequences to see to what extent he'd thought about that.
1: Perhaps you ought to tell us who Pat Pierce was. Yeah, he
5: was a school teacher, a member of the Revolutionary Irish Republican Brotherhood and the... IRB, uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, had infiltrated one of the major nationalist organizations, the Irish Volunteers, who, I I should emphasize, were opposed to Ireland's involvement in the First World War. The mainstream Irish nationalists were, were very much in favor of supporting Britain in that war. Of course, with the prize at the end of it of Home Rule for Ireland, or a devolved Parliament for Ireland. However, the Irish Volunteers, a kind of a minority grouping, um, were considerably more militant. And the IR, yeah, it's slightly complicated because we're talking about a minority within a minority. But the Irish Republican Brotherhood, a secret organization, had the objective of an Irish republic not just a devolved parliament, but an independent Republic of Ireland. And Pierce came to be the leader of the insurgents and also the president or the uh, self-styled president of the new provisional government. Nobody in Easter week 1916, most people in Ireland... Would have had no conception of an Irish Free State, later Irish Republic, being round the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, I do need to get across this was a very small band of highly unrepresentative Irish nationalists seizing the initiative. You know, effectively, and they held the centre of Dublin for six days, during which. Fair bits of the city were laid waste, and it ended on Saturday after Easter week with this unconditional surrender of the rebels. And the casualties, surprisingly, in a way, were relatively light, particularly on the rebel side. But nonetheless, you had something like 200 civilians, innocent civilians, killed and more than 2,000 injured.
3: Mm.
5: And one of the things that I find fascinating is that Patrick Pierce, the, the leader of the rebellion, had talked you know in the the years and months leading up to thousand nine hundred and sixteen about bloodshed about bloodshed being a, a cleansing and a purifying thing i mean 's kind of elements of proto fascism there. But to his credit, actually, when he saw, you know, real bloodshed on on the streets of Dublin, he, he was rather repelled by.
1: And you're saying that the the people who listened to him giving the proclamation were were they a little bemused about what he was saying? Did, did, what, Absolutely.
5: I mean, this this wasn't anticipated by the majority of Irish nationalists. I mean, this was a uh, an underground conspiracy. And uh, it wasn't anticipated, at least at that point, by the, the British authorities in Dublin Castle. So in a sense, it took all Ireland by surprise.
1: And so if we then move forward a bit, and we are able to, to uh, walk around Dublin with Patrick Pearce, what sort of things would you want to be asking him about? I'd,
5: yeah, I would like to have, had he had a moment, to um, go up to Patrick Pearce, um inside the, the GPO and say, so you, you know, you've read the proclamation of a, a republic, but have you thought of the the consequences of, of this heroic gesture? You want a united Ireland, and yet the effect of this rising, I mean, when the news gets to Belfast and um, unionist parts of Ireland, will be to ensure that there's absolutely no possibility of a United Ireland, that petition by virtue of this bloodshed is virtually inevitable. And if I time, I would get in a a related question, I think, which is that aren't you worried about, you know, sparking communal violence on the island in, in the wake of this unrepresentative rising? And thirdly, isn't this a precedent for any minority group within ireland with guns to uh, attempt to seize power and impose their will on the uh, the majority of the people
1: and and do you have any sense of of how he might answer those questions what do you think his reaction would be i
5: think his reaction would not be in terms of uh, notions of democracy or democratic ideas i think his reaction i mean he was an idealist of a, a very intense kind um, rather priggish, a bit humorous, and I think he would have, uh, to me, have just echoed back one of the lines in the Easter Proclamation, which is that they were striking for Ireland's freedom as, as part of a contract with the dead generations who had been seeking Irish freedom down the decades, perhaps down the centuries. The problem, of course, though, is that, you know, anyone can co-opt the dead for um, for any current cause whatsoever. But I think it would have been an appeal to Irish history, to the dead generations, and, yeah, it would have been essentially a set of mystical claims, I think.
1: What are the, the key consequences of Easter 1916? <laughs>
5: Well, the rebellion itself is a failure in the sense that the insurgents, um, it's a military failure, the insurgents surrender after six days and after a quite brave fight. But the longer term effect is to radicalize Irish nationalist opinion and indeed Ulster unionist uh, opinion, you know, on either side of a, a great divide within Ireland. And though it takes a number of years, in January 1919, you have... The beginnings indeed, in my my own county and in, in Tipperary, the beginnings of an IRA campaign which Irish Republican Army campaign, which is determined to break the link with England completely, you know not a devolved parliament which was on offer but a strike for a, an Irish Republic as proclaimed by Pierce and others in outside the GPO in the centre of Dublin in 1916. So the sequel is to, in terms of armed activity, somewhat delayed, but it, it does come about in 1919. And, I mean, the effect is the, what's referred to variously as the Irish War of Independence or the Anglo-Irish War, which results at the end of 1921 in the creation of an Irish free state. But the crucial thing, or one of the crucial things here is that this Irish Free State extends to the nationalist part of the island. I mean, essentially 26 of the 32 counties and indeed the Ulster Unionists have, you know, staked a very firm political and indeed military claim to the um, six northern counties of Ireland. So the, the partition, I mean, it seems to me that one of the legacies of 1916 is the partition of Ireland.
1: Great stuff, very interesting, and I really appreciate you um, taking the time to talk to me. Not at all. Thanks very yeah. much.
0: Now, if that's all piqued your interest, remember that BBC History magazine is on sale in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.60. The March issue is in the shops from Tuesday the 26th of February. Or you can subscribe. UK podcast listeners can subscribe today for just £16.20 every six issues. That's 25% of the cover price. You can order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash historymagazine quoting POD07, or you can call our hotline on 0844 844 0250.
2: Now, just before we go, we'd like to know whether any of you listeners have a historical story that you'd like to share with us. Have you been researching your family or local history and made an interesting discovery, for example? Well, if you have and you'd like to be featured in the Hands-On History section of BBC History magazine, then please get in touch with us. You can do that either by post to Hands On History, BBC History Magazine, 9th Floor, Tower House, Fairfax Street, Bristol, BS1, 3BN, or by email to Magazine at com, putting Hands On History in the subject, and we look forward to hearing from you. Well that's about it for this month, we hope you've enjoyed listening, and don't forget to check out this month's podcast where we'll be exploring Anglo-Dutch gardening, taking a trip to a Victorian farm and talking to the eminent historians Richard Holmes and Michael Wood. So until next time, goodbye.